0: Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We're ready to go through some amazingly damn interesting articles from damninteresting.com. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan.
1: I'm Curtis Luciani.
0: And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link.
1: Okay, I got spaceship content. yes this week. Do we want to start with the uh, the human interest story? or do we want to start with theoretical physics and engineering?
0: Let's go human okay. interest. I feel like we need a, like a heartwarming boost yeah, here. Ease us in here. I'm assuming, oh, is, is it not a nice? I, I,
1: I don't, it's not gonna warm your heart. I wouldn't say it's necessarily going to chill your heart either. It's like cold, cold, dead of space. Right? Your, your heart will probably stay room temperature <laughs> uh, as which probably you'd be dead. If That's your right. Heart was room. That's temperature. true.
0: Room temperature is not. A yeah, good that
1: t- is way too cold for a human heart uh, and healthy <laughs> operation. I think your heart will probably stay at a steady temperature as I tell this story. Well, now Maybe you're just
2: overselling. Get a little yeah. warm.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> overselling if I say will have no impact on you whatsoever.
2: <laughs> you One will month. stay alive after this article. All right, buddy. This, hey, this, you know you got to take what you can get.
1: I wouldn't call this an emotional roller coaster, but you know it's it might be like an emotional children's train ride around the park. You know, an emotional
0: off. carousel.
1: An emotional carousel. <laughs> I love it up it. And down a this is from Esquire it is by Rachel Monroe and it is titled Elon Musk his rocket and the grand scheme that tore apart Boca Chica tore apart is maybe well it's very heightened but
0: it chilled their hearts <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I I'm embarrassed I didn't know this did you know that um Elon Musk's big SpaceX launching pad is in Texas. Specifically, no. it's, yeah, it's at the southernmost tip of Texas. The I, nearly yeah. Mexico
0: part of Texas? Yes, yes. I thought launching pads had to be, like, there's key points on the planet that they have to be on. I guess Texas qualifies. By- I,
1: I guess this qualifies, although it does sound like they've had some trouble with the site. So Boca Chica is a small, small community. It's a place where it's like, well, if you want to go to the beach, but you don't want the hustle and bustle and spring break vibe of South Padre, you could go to Boca Chica and watch the sea turtles uh, swim some out. It's a more mellow vibe. Or at least it was until it became, <laughs> it started shooting it became Elon Musk's uh, private rocket ship base.
2: Hang on. Isn't a beach just kind of not the best place to shoot a rocket well, well i think that's cuz if it comes
0: down it doesn't hurt anybody like cape canaveral mm. is they're all like right there on the water
1: Right. For safety
0: reasons, I think. Yes,
1: yes. But it is something that can cause problems because, yeah, you want it to be closer to the water Mm -hmm. in case, you know, you want (laughs) the (laughs) option of bringing it down into the water. But not so close that
2: it's on literal shifting sand. Yes.
1: And so for this particular launch site for the SpaceX project, and for those of you who don't know, SpaceX is bazillionaire goofball (laughs) and overall comic villain of our society. (laughs) uh, Purely
2: objective take here.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not a big Musk fan, although like I will say there is something fundamentally like lovable about a true goofy in the public sphere. For sure. Even if they are up to stuff that you're not quite sure about. <laughs> Anyhow, this is not unique to Elon Musk. Richard Branson has like Virgin Galactic mm-hmm. or yeah, whatever. I think grand total and, um,
0: I read there's something like twenty six private space companies. I was like, that seems really high. Mm-hmm. I feel like
2: I've only heard of two, maybe three. Yeah. But so, there's a lot out there. I'm yeah. sure if the billionaires are up to it, you're not going to be hearing about all of it. That's true. Yes,
1: yes. Some of them are probably tightly focused on the market space of private escape pod for two to six mm-hmm. <laughs> people. And the rest are uh, all just
2: bucket list items. Right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> right, just
0: take me and no one else. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Anyhow, it's a narrative article, goes through some stories of various locals of Boca Chica, kind of the good and the bad of the experience of living in this place where where an eccentric billionaire is building his (laughs) private space project. Some have gotten very into it. Some have become real rocket groupies. Some people have moved to Boca Chica just to be space Hmm. rocket groupies. That's dedication. Um, A a local lady named Mary has become a major online influencer in Mm. the the space travel enthusiast world by (laughs) posting her Instagram photos of the rockets and so forth. It's just one of those things where something big is coming to town, right? The circus is coming to town or they're shooting a movie in town or they're building a private space fleet in town. I mean, a circus in a
2: movie typically leave though those are known temporary installations oh yeah right? well and it feels like this is ripe
0: for a docu-series like mm-hmm. we need in another mm-hmm. 10 15 years we need to get the interviews of like the old farmer dude on the couch mm-hmm. going we well, just didn't know what was coming you <laughs> yeah. know i mean you know you you have to get that local flavor yeah. yeah contrasted with the space rocket guys
1: yeah it's just it's one of those things where everyone in town feels differently about it Some people are fiercely against it. Some people are just so excited to be proximate to something that looks like science fiction to them.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I just did a temperature
2: check. You're right. My heart is exactly (laughs) ninety-eight (laughs)
0: point six degrees. Didn't
2: didn't raise, didn't drop. It's just right where it was. I, I feel a bit of a chill. A little little bit bit of an ominous chill.
1: I mean, anything a billionaire does. I'm sorry. Like at this point, I feel anything a billionaire does basically creeps me out. (laughs) Except like when they die and they leave their money to like some giant foundation. Fine with that. If you want, you know, whatever. I mean, this is a
2: tangent for another podcast, which I'm sure we could fill three hours with. Go check
1: out at Boca Chica Gal on Twitter and I presume Instagram as well for Mary's cool rocket photos. Got to give them credit. Charming looking <laughs> rockets. Old timey looking. I mean, they just look like silos, you know? With like Super rivets classic. all over them. And- yeah. Yeah. Nice. yeah. All right. All right. Let's, uh, hey, let's blast off to our next link. <laughs> next, <laughs> next, next link.
2: link. Well, that segue was absolutely perfect because we have just discovered a large exoplanet that could have the right conditions for (gasps) life. See you later, Mars. Say hello to K218b. It just Mm. rolls off the tongue. (laughs) (laughs) They always do. Uh, So this is about 124 light years away. It's 2.6 times the radius and 8.6 times the mass of Earth and orbits its star within the habitable zone where temperatures could allow liquid water to exist. But this is one of those like, it is so far away, we have
0: no idea. I mean, we
2: don't, how much data do we really have on it? That's a really good question. So we much data
1: do you need? <laughs> it's got water, baby! Let's just go!
2: <laughs> we're, we're still continuing to gather data and they've done things like studying the shadows of how the sun is falling in order to calculate a lot mm-hmm. of these things, mm-hmm. but you know, if Musk and the other space billionaires are getting their ducks in a row, this, this could be closer since we know NASA's not getting the funding. All right. they need
1: is faster than light travel. <laughs> stay <laughs> tuned. Stay tuned on that. Get the generational
2: stay, ships going. Stay tuned.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Keep that podcast tuned in. That's
2: right. They're thinking that this is more like a smaller version of Neptune than a larger version of Earth. So basically, (laughs) they used the mass, radius, and atmospheric data of the exoplanet to determine that it's possible for the planet to host liquid water beneath its hydrogen-rich atmosphere. So that's a bit of an issue there. Not breathable. (laughs) But even despite the size of it and having this hydrogen envelope, it's not necessarily too thick. And that the water layer could have the right conditions to support life. So it's a little bit vague here. Life doesn't necessarily mean our life. Right. Right?
1: There's something so cruel about the, like, is it a bigger Earth versus is it a smaller Neptune? Like, <laughs> like I like I like to think of myself as like a kind of a handsomer Paul Giamatti type, but like <laughs> someone else might think of me as like a a less attractive mm. Gerard Butler. Type. Mm, I don't right. know. <laughs> right. I don't. I don't. I don't know. You don't who spend your time are. thinking
0: about those
2: gentlemen. You're only looking at the guys mm. lower than you. So you can be like, yeah, that's mm. what I <laughs> like. I'm a more palatable Margaret Cho, but not quite a svelte Michelle Kwan. <laughs> Right. I mean, these comparisons are only useful when you have these data points. And, you know, when we're talking about space, we do have a lot of data points. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, the researchers found that the maximum extent of the hydrogen envelope allowed by the data is around 6% of the planet's mass. In particular, a number of scenarios allow for an ocean world Ooh. with liquid water below the atmosphere at pressures and temperatures similar to those found in Earth's oceans. So like by ocean, you mean like the whole planet is ocean, like water world kind of stuff? It's more like the life it could support would be oceanic is right. what they're thinking. If there's life there, it's mm-hmm. got to be aquatic. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So this, you know, the study that's been done and and these very, very early results being announced basically opens the search for habitable conditions and biosignatures outside the solar system to exoplanets that are significantly larger than
1: Earth. I think we could, I mean, if we can get to a planet that far away, I think we'd also have the technology to just splice ourselves with fish and just go mermaid. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, I mean, that's a world. cinch. That's
1: a cinch compared to compared getting to the, to the planet. Yeah, getting yeah. there. Once right? you get
2: there, we've got to have all sorts of How hard
1: of is technology. it to, to cut a few gills in your throat?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: I mean, it's more than just the cutting, surely. It's no, rare. just at home. You just get, I mean, you want to make sure the knife is clean. But other mm-hmm. than that, it's... I'm pretty yeah. sure there are some body modifiers who've been doing stuff like that and i know gill about, stuff yeah i'm I mean, sure they there's may not be, be functional they're probably, but they're aesthetic <laughs> Certainly, not.
1: you cannot cut a hole anywhere you like in your body and breathe through it that's right public service one announcement. thing that we have tried to emphasize to <laughs> yeah. our audience that's the
2: disclosure i was waiting for after just cut some holes and cut some gills in. And How don't do that be? no <laughs> not not indoors no
1: no no wait until they've got the genetics figured out and at that point Please feel free to splice yourself. Yeah, jump right into the
0: regeneration tank and go <laughs> yeah. for it. But Get... splice responsibly. Yes,
1: yeah, splice responsibly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's
0: well, like when you do eye surgery. You do surgery on the one eye to make sure you don't go blind. And if you do, you still got the other. Like You never do two eyes at the same time. So maybe you do like gills on one side of your neck
2: first. Yes. I you... got Lasik both eyes at the same time. Well,
0: Lasik's not nearly as dangerous. I mean, like when they're doing like semi-dangerous mm. stuff on eyes even if you need it on both they said we're going to do one and then in like three
2: months once we're sure you can see out of this eye again we'll go back and do the well, other that's one confidence inspiring it is <laughs> isn't it
1: <laughs> we're gonna
2: guinea pig you with your own body and hey you got two you got two <laughs> yeah.
1: sensible though sensible next yeah. link next, next link.
2: link i'm
0: gonna bring us back to our own planet but the extremities of our planet this article starts with a premise that we all know who was the first man to reach the North Pole, and I, I think geologists and scientists in that arena probably do. But I didn't know. Supposedly, it's a rich white dude named Robert Peary. Yeah. However, uh-huh. as you can probably anticipate, it wasn't. Mm. Uh, the first person to reach the North Pole was in fact an African American named Matthew Henson. Hey. And so oh. this article is about hey, let's you know reexamine this guy's legacy and actually maybe give a crap. Yeah. Basically, in 1887, Robert Peary the Aimed already at that point, expeditionist and explorer, was shopping in a gentleman's clothing store and met 21 year old Matthew Henson, who was working in that store. And they got to talking basically, what do you do for a living? <laughs> I work in a clothing store. What do you do? Oh, I explore. <laughs> Horrible. Uh- do, you ha- do you
1: have any hobbies? Yeah, my hobby is uh, I just point north and I just keep going <laughs> and, uh, you know, see what happens.
0: <laughs> but as it turned out, Matthew Henson did actually have. Exploring and exploration wow. as a bit of a hobby, which sort of impressed Robert Peary. The thing about Matthew Henson was he'd been born into a family of free sharecroppers in Maryland, but they'd had to flee the state after his parents had been targeted by the KKK. Oh. So he was on mm. his own as a child. This was, wow. I mean, he was out. Right. And so at the age of 12, he took a job as a cabin boy. And the captain of the ship basically took him under his wing, taught him to read and write. And so by the age of 21, you know, he'd settled into a more businessy type job, but he had explored far more than a lot of the wannabe explorers that were part of the National Geographic Society where Peary kind of hung out. Mm. And he's like, man, I hang out with all these white dudes who think of themselves as explorers. You've actually got a lot of experience. And he hired him on the spot. He Mm -hmm. said, you know, quit your job. Come be my guy. I want you to help me with all these building tents and training sled dogs and things. Mm. And so he did. And he from that point on, he went on every single one of Peary's expeditions. He was incredibly skilled. Like Peary fully admitted this guy is amazing. He's Mm -hmm. the reason I'm able to do all of this. In particular, Matthew Henson learned to speak the Inuit language Inuktitut better than anyone else in the expedition. Dang. So he was the guy doing all the communicating. He built the igloos. He trained the sled dogs. He frequently came up with these life-saving solutions to problems they were having, you know, in the horrible icy cold. And he really was the glue that held this team together. He was the amazing. Sherpa, basically. Yeah. Except he wasn't Inuit. Like, he was just a guy who was better at Peary's job than Peary was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. so they they explored a lot of places. They went to Nicaragua. They did a bunch of other stuff. But Peary's goal, obviously, was to reach the North Pole. And they had tried seven times and had failed every time they'd had to go back. And on the eighth try, Peary was getting kind of old. And they were five miles from the North Pole. And Peary had frostbite on his toes. He was sick. He couldn't go on. So he told Henson, you go ahead, get there, and I'm going to catch up. (laughs) And so Matthew Henson and these four Inuit guides that they had with them did. And Henson says, I put the flag in the ground. It was amazing. He wrote a book later on. He described this whole very moving experience. Peary says. Yeah, yeah, they went ahead and I caught up like really quickly, and yeah, I'm the one who put the flag in. Right, but there is a photo of the event, and it only shows Henson and four Inuit gentlemen. Oh. Peary is not in there, and you got to think if Peary were there, he would have demanded to be uh, in the photo. Uh, yeah, so Peary may have. He would have not...
2: demanded Henson take the
0: photo. Yeah, I mean, he Peary may not have even gone there at all. At the very least, he no. wasn't the first one there. And so that was the end of the trip. They came back. They reported, we've been there. Here's our photos. Here's our proof. National Geographic Society said, oh, my God, Peary, you're amazing. They gave him these awards. Uh. Peary, of course, getting up in years now, he says, well, I've done what I set out to do. I need to retire. This one took it out of me. I really can't do this again. And when Peary retired, Henson was out of a job. And no one else was going to hire him
2: because we're still in very racist, horrible times. And nobody really knew the value that he provided to the expedition because he took all the credit. Because no one's going to tell anybody.
0: And so he was done. That was the last time he explored anything. He went back and worked as a clerk in the customs house in New York. And he, I mean, he had a decent job. And later in life, he did get a little bit of recognition, but even that was kind of bittersweet. In 1944, The government sort of said, you know, we need to acknowledge this guy. Let's award him a medal. Oh, I know. Let's award him the Peary Polar Expedition Medal. Like, (laughs) they gave him, I mean, it just, yeah. yeah, yeah. But he doesn't seem to have been too upset about it. He wrote his book called A Negro Explorer at the North Pole in 1912. It sold pretty well. And it should also be said, fully aside from whether Henson or Peary got up there, the Inuit who were living there, had probably been there repeatedly. Yeah. And so, you know, who was the first? Well, the first was this whole tribe who was constantly up there. Yeah. It wasn't
2: really, no. you know, the first westerner maybe. Or- right, exactly. Oh. And This was also an
0: interesting detail. Peary's wife, Josephine, was a super explorer herself. She went along on a bunch of his expeditions. By the time they were getting to the North Pole, she wasn't there, but she had attended one of their attempts to get to the North Pole, where they didn't make it. And just 12 degrees shy of the North Pole, she gave birth to their daughter. Dang! And she wrote a book called (laughs) The Snow Baby. And so, I mean, she clearly, like... (laughs) (laughs) The snow Snow Baby! So she was really cool on her own. And there's a link to another article in the article about how cool she was, and there's a bunch of really... Cool people involved. And just another fun little tip: Henson and Peary both fathered children with Inuit women while they were on these many expeditions. And in fact, they have a direct line of descendancy to Taraji P. Henson, Ooh. who's cookie lion on Empire. <laughs> she is his great great-granddaughter of this really cool explorer dude who, as far as we can tell, was the first oh, Westerner awesome. at the North Pole. Wow. So That's really cool. yeah, he's cool and she's cool, and Peary's kind of a dick, but you know, it's <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, yeah. let, let's give him credit. He did underpay people to carry out yeah, That's stuff. right. <laughs>
0: yeah. And that's one of the things that the article sort of talks about is like, look, on the one hand, yeah, all of these expeditions were group efforts. All these people that we say, oh, this was the guy. Nobody does any of these right. things alone right. at right. all. And at the same time, it takes a lot of money to do these expeditions. Right. And if they weren't funding it, nobody would. That's yeah, why from... Henson couldn't
2: get a job afterwards. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From the lens of patronage, yes. All Somebody applause to. goes yeah. to this guy, That's but right. but yeah. he sure. should get like the producer award. Exactly, Vincent should get like
0: the yeah. main actor. That is one. the thing
1: though. you know when a, when a movie wins Best Picture, who gets to collect that trophy? The person who paid for it. Yeah, you know? all yeah. right. So best. A lot of people still think yes. Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> you know
2: that black it's, turtleneck just commanded too much respect.
1: Yeah, yeah yes. it's just we can't seem to get over that framework. Well, oh, part
2: know. of it, yeah, I think, has to do with the very Western ideal of singular hero. Oh
0: yeah, because it's all about our individualism. Mm-hmm. That's what we're all about. Mm-hmm. The idea that no, actually, it took about one hundred and twenty people, all told, going up and mm-hmm. you know, s- cooking the meat and doing everything. Yeah. Had oh, to I just to to sit
2: through the credits. I'm only going to do that if I get a Marvel teaser for the next <laughs> movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, not so good, not yeah. so good. But I, I'm glad we're talking about Matthew Henson.
0: Yeah, yeah. At least we know cool about dude. him now. And, and you name. know, Taraji P. Henson, she's pretty good, I hear. I've never seen the show so i don't know uh, she's great <laughs> yeah
1: she's great she was in uh it's a SpaceX uh, she was in Hidden Figures
0: Oh, well. oh yeah, yeah. that was another one I didn't that. see, but I well, wanted to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you got to see these Taraji P Henson projects. I do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hunt her down now. Yeah. here.
0: she's breaking all sorts
2: of ground. I Just don't like know. your Great, great grandfather. With, with her provenance, she may hunt you down. That's true. She might have. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <She> <laughs> uh, <have>. Ooh,
1: <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. She, she's, she's done that a couple times too. She
2: can withstand <laughs> the
0: elements. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next link. Next, next link. link.
1: Okay, now let's go back to space. This one, this ran on Science Alert but I think originally is from a publication called Universe Today by Matt Williams. It is scientists are starting to take warp drive seriously, especially this one concept. So what are your favorite forms of science fictional, like faster than light travel?
0: I'm partial to Battlestar Galactica. I like the- uh, You like the, a jump. I like a jump, yeah. A
1: jump drive. Yeah, yeah, jumps are cool.
0: Give me a
2: classic warp. Turbo like you want in the stars like, yes. going into lines yeah. into your face. Yeah, mm-hmm. Got it. Well,
1: warp drive is the concept we're talking about <laughs> here. Yeah, yeah, so of course, The scientific community is always interested in exploring concepts by which faster than light travel might be possible. Of course, this article is based on a recent presentation uh, conducted by Joseph Agnew, who's an undergraduate engineer and research assistant at the University of Alabama. And he was exploring some concepts originally put forth by the Mexican physicist Miguel Subieri in 1994. And it's a concept for a faster-than-light travel system that would still satisfy the Einstein field equations. And the basic idea behind it is that what you would have is some kind of engine, some kind of apparatus that could stretch the fabric of space-time in a wave. So you essentially cause the space ahead of it to contract while the space behind it expands. And you ride this wave of distorted space. So it very much like, mm. you know, the mental image that I get is very much like the Star Trek warp drive concept mm-hmm. the idea of space kind zoom. of distending. Around the vessel, and the idea
0: is that this wouldn't take thousands of years; that you would genuinely be very quickly able. Yes, I
1: don't know. I don't know exactly. It doesn't say here exactly how fast Mm, they think it could be, but they've continued to explore this and have found ways that, very much beyond my ken, to explain exactly how these things work, but ways in which it could be feasible to construct such an engine. And the big thing, of course, is energy. You know, Mm -hmm, like the question of, like, well. Yes, theoretically, we could put together a model by which you could do this, but of course, the amount of energy required fifty thousand would be would be yeah. yeah, We don't have dilithium
2: crystals yet. No. Yeah.
1: However,
0: twenty one
2: gigawatts.
1: (laughs) They are making progress with that because originally they were looking at concepts like this. They kind of were like, well. How much energy would it require? Uh, like all the energy in the known universe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they are thinking now that the amount of energy required would be about equivalent to the mass of Jupiter. Okay. We could sacrifice still, a
0: Jupiter. <laughs>
1: still, still an insane amount of energy. But but it's not all the energy in the known universe. Than all the energy yeah. in the known universe. They think they could possibly explore how to do this with exotic matter. People always, you know, a real go-to in science fiction is like, oh, an anti-matter drive, right? Right. Just put that's, those words out there yeah. and don't explain it. That's good techno babble. That uh-huh. sounds very convincing. Well, that's the kind of thing that they are considering is like if you could get a huge mass of exotic matter under your control.
2: Exotic matter sound like I'm a little triggered hearing exotic yeah. matter. <laughs> like, like is this yeah. what you're gonna you're gonna go to Myanmar and like take some exotic? <laughs> like what does that even mean? I'm picturing it dancing. On a pole, like it's like you know the exotic well, matter. Well, <laughs> I mean, I want to Google exotic matter, but I also don't want to destroy my Google history. Yeah, that's a bad idea. Yeah. I don't think you're gonna get what
1: you want yeah. here. Put it in, put it in quotes, and uh, put space, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, you know, Mesa
0: back... and a few more other terms in
1: there. <laughs> Client, is very hot in this this uh, studio, right? Everybody's now.
2: uncomfortable. It's very very stuffy.
1: <laughs> oh my lord. Oh, we better move on to that next link. All right. Next Next link. link.
2: All right. How about a palette cleanser? We've been talking about space. We've been talking about planets. Let's talk about the permaviral world of the at home nose job.
1: (gasps) Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. Okay. All right.
2: It's it's a little clickbaity, I'll admit. But Emma Gray Ellis at Wired wrote an article that basically looks into a mainstream social media subtrend, which is showing off non surgical methods to remodel your face for more flattering selfies. It's oh, a, it's with a, makeup. Not makeup, but oh. also not necessarily surgery. So okay. basically, these are things like nose shapers, which look a little bit like a plastic clothespin to maybe like pinch in a wide nose, or face shapers that wrap around the heads and necks and attach behind <laughs> the ears with a recommended wear time of eight hours. <laughs> this is like foot wrapping, but for the modern, like horrible... That's right. It's oh. like face modifications oh, that man. don't require you to go under the... The knife. Although some people are giving themselves injections and things like that and sharing it on social media. But I mean, the pressure to have the perfect selfies amplified by yeah. all of these different filters that are widely available mm-hmm. and are known to be a little racist at times too. Sure. You know, yeah. like yeah. shaving the face, making the eyes blue, mm-hmm. making the skin white, stuff yeah. like that. Making
1: the eyes bigger mm- right Yep, very and And yeah. like,
2: especially in South Korea, there's like a known perfect face ratio that has like a heart-shaped face with a tiny little pointy chin and big cheekbones. And other gurus online have reviewed nose tweakers, injectable nasal bone lifters, nose shaping exercises and double chin flatteners in the hundreds from all over the world i mean this is also a global thing too like for sure insecurity knows no nationality we're all (laughs) that's right and with the internet these things can spread faster than ever so (laughs) (laughs) there was a thing a
0: couple of years ago i remember where like
2: it was silly it wasn't
0: intended to be genuine but it was like Suck your lips into the mouth of a Coca-Cola oh, bottle. I believe
2: you're referring to the Kylie Jenner lip challenge. It was oh, oh goodness, I didn't know it had a name. <laughs> it was Basically, just... it's like those pumps, right? Or so a bottle or right, something. It sucks your lips inside, yeah. and like if you look up the Kylie Jenner lip challenge, there are ones where like you know some kids were overdoing it and got like oh, yeah. ridiculously huge lips and things. like that. Well, and like give that. themselves
0: hickeys. I mean, you can like oh, yeah. destroy
2: blood vessels, and then you just look bruised. It's, it's the power of suction pressure. That's oh, right. But parrot. the power of pressure is indeed real with social media. Right. (laughs) The oldest known record of a nose shaper, according to this article, was a 1905 patent held by an American named Ignatius Nathaniel Sores Hmm. for a device that was basically a nose cup held on by a strap that wound around the head and then buckled above the eyes. And it was made by a dude for women. Of course it yeah. was. Um, but, you know, we've all people always want to look better, especially people who make their living in front of cameras. In the 90s, tapes and other devices were used if you wanted to take a few years off someone, you know, maybe, like, pull back from the eyelids. Right, you just like put that. it under the
0: hairline. You get that little pull.
2: Exactly. But you see less of it now because of CGI, right? If you're actually going in front of the camera and you're a product, you know... Just fix it. There's still work that's being done off camera, but there's plenty need to be done on camera now too and
0: until we have home CGI kits it's gonna be all home nose job I feel
2: like AI is gonna go there first in terms I mean it's super monetizable and yeah yeah.
1: it does it does make you be like well maybe maybe we should it'll be better (laughs) when we're all just replaced by avatars (laughs) <laughs> we're
2: we're kind, we're kind of already there though aren't yeah, we i mean, I mean we're like kind of, yeah it's been standardized now and expected that you have an avatar of yourself however real it is or right whether it's, it's a th- real
0: photo or a cartoon
2: mm-hmm. or whatever you have something that's representing you exactly and you have more tools that are available to manipulate that but k pop stars they do these face rollers they show them having those nose pinchers you know when they're streaming and they're not actually on stage when young Chinese women are preparing their faces for the day and they show their routine on YouTube or Weibo, they might stick up their chins and necks with tape and put things that look like cotton or rubber into their nose to make their bridge look stiffer. <sighs> yep. It's a thing. It's online if you want to look it up. Apparently, it's all over I TikTok do, right I now. I do not want to look <laughs> <laughs> And it's worth noting that none of this is ever going to be permanent. You know, these are not designed to right, be under Nothing's no- going to be. And according to one doctor, plastic surgeons have enough of a selfie problem already. Quote, when patients... Patients bring me pictures. A lot of the time, I have to tell them I know that person, and that's not what they look like. So, mm-hmm. even the selfies that you're seeing of people who have had work done, they're still putting on filters, they're still adjusting the photo balance and whatever. Yeah. Fun stuff. At least we're moving closer to our alien ideal, right? Yeah. That's right. That well, is. once we can change everything, we can put the gills in. I mean, that's <laughs> what—that's really what this is. This is just preliminary
0: yes. steps yeah. to being able to get us to gill point. Yeah.
1: The Korean, like South Korean entertainment, you know, K-pop and all that, which is like it's—it's it's, oh, it's 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 really industry. it's really fun and fascinating, mm-hmm. and there's something like kind of. They're very sinister about it because mm-hmm. it's a unapologetically like industrial commercial yeah. model, yeah. and you know you see these bands and they're really fun, but it's like nine unbelievably beautiful looking people, oh yeah, and you know that they're on a meat grinder. There's thousands of oh, more yeah. unbelievably right. beautiful, waiting. talented people mm-hmm. just waiting for the next spot. Oh, there, they're not which just is waiting; just... they're
2: training. Yeah, I mean there are whole schools where they train you how to sing and to dance and to pose and to go through interviews and mm-hmm. and survive them. Meat grinder mm-hmm. and it's as competitive as any Ivy League school. Jackie Chan went to one. I learned, Did he
0: really? yeah, they, and it was one of those things like it's a boarding school. You start at five, and they went in and they learned martial arts, right? And acting and dancing and singing. Yeah, the, and that, <laughs> he, he he's talked all about it. It's a yeah, crazy industry the, over there. The wow.
1: Beijing, the Beijing Opera, where a lot of the martial arts stars of Asian cinema came up. And yeah, if you put your kid into like the Beijing Opera, you had to sign a waiver that was basically like do oh, whatever you know. Yeah, the anything kid could happen. The, We're the not kid apologizing. could die. We could just work. <laughs> The kid to death.
2: Yeah, and yep. you
1: can't do anything.
2: Good stuff. Mm. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, I have a
0: quick little one here. It's a uplifting and actually makes you feel like the whole world might be okay. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to yeah. jump any guns, but I feel like it might be. Oh, so we know that plants evolve to suit their environments, even toxic ones, right? Mm-hmm. Not just plants, but all creatures. So we've found, you know, some bacteria in like really harsh areas. We found new strains of bacteria that are learning to eat plastic.
2: Yeah, you know, and
0: it doesn't necessarily say that we're going to be around, but it gives you a little bit of hope that life will go on. Mm -hmm. But actually, we have some of these right now and have had them for hundreds and hundreds of years. There is a subset of plants. About 700 known species of plants are able to thrive in metal-rich soils that kill all other plants. And what's more, they actually draw the metals up into their root systems. They're sort of collecting them. They clean the soil. Yeah. And they collect them in the stems. We can actually smelt that metal out of the plants. What? (laughs) Yeah. It's really cool stuff. It's called phytomining. And... Alan Baker is a botany professor at the University of Melbourne. He has now proven it on a small scale from an industrial profitability standpoint. Mm. They've sort of known about these plants for several centuries, but he basically has taken a little bit less than an acre in Borneo. They planted these special plants that are known to pull up nickel out of the soil. And about every six to 12 months, a farmer goes through and cuts off one foot of growth from all the plants they have. And that one foot from each tree, you run it through a peanut press. It gets this bright green sap because the nickel is what makes it bright green. Mm. And from the sap, from that just roughly one acre of one foot cutoffs, you can smelt up to 500 pounds of nickel citrate, which is worth several thousand dollars. So having proven it on a small scale, he's about to go to the big scale. You know, there's a lot of really cool benefits to this. A, we get to pull metals out, right? We're not destroying the environment when we pull the metals out. We're cleaning up land that's already dirty. After about 20 years, this metal mining farm is going to be tapped out. Mm. But then we can plant Mm. other stuff on the ground again. It becomes arable. Yeah. And so this particular experiment was just with nickel. But in fact, they know of plant species that can do this with all sorts of other metals. And they said, you know, like fracking, it has the ability to pull out these trace amounts that we can't get. Mm. So there are existing abandoned nickel mines, for example, that are just absolute blights Mm. on the environment where they are. If you could convince these companies, hey, go back, clean it up plant these plants, you'll get more out of it and you'll clean up this thing that you left that's just a disaster for Mm -hmm. the local area. So there's like almost no drawbacks. And I'm sure there are some because (laughs) there always are. But it just seemed like a really cool and they showed like you can just cut right into the plant and this green sap goes out and he's like, you can just soak that up and pull some nickel out of it and sell it on the open market. And it's, (laughs) it's really cool.
1: Every time we figure out something good and like beneficial we can do with plants, I always kind of feel like, man, we don't deserve it. (laughs) <laughs> no, <laughs> plants, plants, plants keep uh, helping us out, and it's keep like saving yeah, our it's such a one-sided relationship. But on the other hand, man, the plants know they're in it for the long game. Mm. Yeah, you know, yeah,
2: they'll be around long. The after plants we're gone. are
1: patient. Mm-hmm. They know that we are just a subplot.
2: True stewards <laughs> of the earth, I would wager. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: God bless them.
2: Yeah, I mean, is it bad to have? Obviously, in excess amounts, having huge amounts of metal in soil can be bad. But I've also heard and read things about how, like, getting trace minerals and things like that through working with the earth can be really good for you, especially if you're not getting that through, like, food or whatever else. Sure. No, it's quite possible we might find
0: out too late that these plants suck every available <laughs> right. nutrient. And then we have to, like, go and put, put metals it back. into the earth. I don't know. I'm not sure what, what the consequences are going to be long term. There always are some. But at least for the short term, it seems like this is a mm-hmm. really cool thing where they can go to these communities that have been destroyed yeah. by mining and clean them up and fix the land and make more money. Like who doesn't want to be an industry? Are these get naturally occurring plants? Yeah. These are species that we know about. The guy who uh, first discovered them, his name was Georgius Agricola. And he recognized the Stop. potential.
2: His name was Agricola. Agricola.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, well, and I think he was like the father of modern mining. And I think he may, I don't know, he was apparently a very cool dude, but he recognized the potential 500 years ago, and he smelted plants in his free time. But at the time, because pollution wasn't such an issue, he was largely using it as a way to identify the veins of metal that were under the ground already. Oh. He could say, he said, I can walk into a forest and look at the leaves and tell you what's under the ground.
2: Wow! So
0: that was his whole deal. Was like, oh, these are markers, and it's fun to smelt it out of the plants because who doesn't want to smelt some plants every <laughs> once in a while? But <laughs> now they're sort of realizing, like, oh, we've now screwed everything up. We could actually use these plants, and they're they're existing species. You don't have to modify them or anything. Wow!
2: Yeah. Wow, nature. Yeah. Plants. they <laughs> are ending on an uplifting note. I'm just I just nostalgia. want to sigh
1: and think about plants for a moment. Yeah. Think we, about you
2: know. You know, it's like dogs. You can say we don't deserve them, but you know, they seem to think we do. Yeah, take take <laughs> what take what you can get. You know,
0: right? if they're offering their love. Yeah, if the plants
2: want to help us. I say, let them. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I, I I prefer to think that they love us, but not like a dog loves us, but like they're playing the long game yeah. with us. We are the dogs you know. to
2: plants. There you go.
1: I think. I hope so. I, I <laughs> hope so because honestly, they deserve it more than we do. Right.
0: Just, just give them the planet.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad that you've joined us. If you want to know more about the articles we've talked about or see some of the other cool articles we didn't get to, some of those titles are The Sinatra Movie, Some Blamed for JFK's Death, The Truth About Alligators in the Sewers of New York, and This Robot Taught Itself to Walk Entirely on Its Own. So that and more can be found. If you'd like to support the podcast and help us stay on the air and keep bringing you fun and entertaining content, you can go to patreon.com damninterestingweek damn Give us a little tip. Tell us how much you like the job that we're doing. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan.
1: I'm Curtis Luciani. And I'm
0: Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.